0: scripture reading is from the gospel of john chapter 7 verses 1 through 24 it can be found on page 892 in the black bibles after this jesus went up about in galilee he would not go about in judea because the jews were seeking to kill him now the jews feast of booths was at hand so his brother said to him leave here and go to judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him.
1: About the middle of the feast... Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The word of the Lord.
2: Thanks, Thanks Leslie and Wes, so much. And good morning again to you. Um, I don't know why John invited me to preach on the day that he announced a $900,000 increase to the budget. You can't interpret that uh, as you will. But be that as it may, let me, uh, let me open us in prayer as we look into God's word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for sending Jesus to accomplish your will in bringing redemption to us through faith. We pray that in light of your words, Jesus, hear that... We would judge you with right judgment as we look into your word this morning. We ask it in your name. Amen. If you're a Boston Red Sox fan of a certain age, even if you're younger than a certain age, you probably know the story. You probably have embedded in your memory banks game six of the 1986 World Series, which I watched, uh, strangely enough, when I was growing up in Jackson, uh, we had a double-A team in Jackson that fed to the New York Mets. It was very random. They, 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 they repaired this later on and made it a Braves feeder team, which made a lot more sense. But back in the day, it was a, it was a Mets farm team, so I was kind of a quasi-Mets fan. So I was watching the World Series between the Boston Red Sox, uh, the New York Mets, 1986, game six. The Red Sox are going to win. They're going to break the curse. It's the ninth inning, and they're up five to three. The Mets are at bat. In fact, one of the Mets players, Kevin Mitchell, had already taken off his uniform and changed clothes and was on the phone in the dugout with his agent trying to book a flight back to uh, San Diego in the middle of the inning. And he might, go, might be up at bat. In fact, he did get up at bat, strangely enough. The unthinkable happened in this inning. Gary Carter singled. Kevin Mitchell put his pants back on and then singled. Singled. Ray Knight, single, Carter scored. Mitchell moved over to third base and then he scored on a wild pitch. It's a tie game. Ray Knight advanced to third base and then Mookie Wilson was two outs in the inning. Mookie Wilson hits a slow dribbler down the first baseline that Bill Buckner, the first baseman, had fielded a million of and it went through his legs. Mookie Wilson is safe, Ray Knight scores, the Mets won that game, and then they went on to win game seven, and the Red Sox curse still stood after 1986. Now, I remember watching that game on my sofa, very safe distance away, and thinking to myself, how could he miss that? I could have caught that. I was 15, right? I could have caught that. How did he miss that? Well, fast forward uh, a few months to that next summer, it was the summer before my 10th grade year, that's when high school started for us in Mississippi. So I was playing in my first, and you'll see in a second why, almost my last summer league high school baseball game. And again, it was the ninth inning. We were the home team. We were last at bat. I got to hit a single. I stole second. I advanced to third on a fly ball to right field. And when I got to third base, I was thinking to myself, we're going to win. And then I thought to myself, I'm going to win the game. I'm going to win this game. And I was, I, was, I was thinking about that. I was taking my lead off of third base. I was like, I wonder, because there's nothing to do in Jackson, there's a bunch of people at this game. So I was like, I wonder if these girls over here know about to win this game. Uh, they should probably be paying very close attention to this right now. And so I have a lead off of third base, and I look over my shoulder to see if the cute girls are paying attention to what's about to happen. They were not. They were talking to each other, which makes this a lot worse. Because while my head was turned, I hear this flap. And I thought to myself, that sounds familiar. And, and what it was, what was a familiar sound, it was the sound of the pitcher picking me off of third base. I turned my head around, and the third baseman, literally, this is a true story. I knew this kid. This is like, he was smiling. He was holding the ball. And I, I I got picked. Nobody gets picked off third base. Have you ever seen it happen? It happens. It happened to me. And it made me think about Bill Buckner because it put me in a very, by the way, my coach was so mad at the end of that inning. He had to stand on the outside of the dugout where they have the fence, you know, because he was grabbing hold of it and going like this. Um, Water under the bridge, you know, like obviously there's no impact here. But, um, you know, it's all perspective Sitting on the sofa watching a Major League Baseball game and watching a guy commit an error is very different than when you're the one standing there, you know, having something horrible like that, you know, occur in a in a in a sports situation. So when we put ourselves in different situations, we have different reactions to the things that happen and to the things that we see. And this is really what John is trying to get us to do in John chapter 7. John is recording historical events, he is writing history. But he is not only writing history. In chapter 20, John tips his hand and he says exactly why he's writing down these things that Jesus did. In John chapter 20, he says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, John is inviting you to put yourself in the story where different characters have very different reactions to Jesus. We have his brothers in verses 1 through 9 who dismiss him. We have the crowd in Jerusalem in verses 10 through 14 who are duplicitous record, uh, uh, regarding Jesus. And we have the religious leaders in Jerusalem in verses 14 through 24 who are derisive of Jesus. The question for us is, who are we in the story? Who are you in this story? What is your response to Jesus? So the first judgment about Jesus that we see is dismissal. It's really about treating Jesus with less weight and glory than he deserves, which is all too easy, but it's really a tragedy when it happens. The Bible tells us that Jesus is God, God in human flesh, the creator of the universe. It happens all the time, though, that we don't treat him with the weight that he deserves. We see this in, verse, in the first nine verses with Jesus' brothers issuing a challenge to him. And these are likely, literally Jesus' brothers, not brothers in quotation marks, like his family members, who don't believe in him. Some of them do later, we find out, because they write some of the Bible. Uh, But they don't believe in him. And they're challenging him. They're kind of rubbing him a little bit. They're poking him a little bit. Because they're they're like, look, Jesus, sure, it's easy to be a big deal up here in Podunk, you know, Galilee. It's easy to be a big religious teacher up here and to gather, you know, and and to get a, a gathering up here. But if you want to be the man, if you want to really be the great rabbi of Israel... Well, then you've got to go up to Jerusalem. You've got to go to Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths, and you've got to show them what you got. But in their head, they're thinking, because you ain't got it, you know. Uh, that's really kind of what they're thinking. Now, the Feast of Booths is one of the three major religious festivals in Judaism, where if people were able to do it, they would they would leave their houses. They would leave the places they live. They would gather in Jerusalem to celebrate those feasts. The other two are Passover and Pentecost. The Feast of Booths is a festival that commemorated uh, the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. That's why they call it the booths, because while they were in the wilderness for the 40 years, they slept in shelters. And so during the Feast of Booths, people set up shelters all over the city, and they slept in tents, essentially. Even if they were residents of Jerusalem, they didn't sleep in their houses. They would sleep... Um, intense it also happened during the time of the harvest so after the full week of festivities were over they'd have a great grand celebration celebrating the harvest celebrating uh, God's provision for them and obviously if you wanted to be the next religious rock star that's the place that you would go you know if I can make it there I can make it anywhere I'm going to the feast of Booths. I'm going to Jerusalem baby you know but and that's what and that's what um you know, Jesus' brothers were trying to get him to do. But what Jesus said is this, no, no. First of all, you don't understand my agenda. And second of all, I'm not following your agenda. I have come to do the will of my Father. I will go to Jerusalem in my own time and for my own purposes and not for yours. That's really what he means when he says he's not going to go up to the feast in verse 9. He basically means I'm not going up at your timing to do what you want me to do. So he shows up late actually. He does go to the feast but he shows up late for his own purposes. The main problem here is that his brothers are treating him lightly. Not treating him as the Messiah who came to bring redemption to all things, but treating him as a worldly religious leader who had in his own mind his own religious reputation and what he could gain in this world. But there was no weight to it. There was no glory. There was no trust. And there was, as John tells, there's absolutely no faith. Just think about that for a second. I mean, how used to we are, are we right now to, to the name of Jesus being taken lightly? Without weight, without honor, without glory. Think about all of the media we consume. And I mean, all of it from TV to movies to podcasts to magazines to newspapers to YouTube to Twitter to Instagram to Facebook to TikTok, everything. Just think of all of the ways that the name of Jesus is treated without weight. I was, um, a couple of months ago in December, I was in a waiting room and I was flipping through a national magazine, a well known national magazine. And in that magazine they were interviewing uh, various men who were uh, famous or kind of powerful and they were basically asking them for advice on how to thrive in the new year. You get to the end of that kind of flipping through that interview and the writer did a fictitious interview with another character. He did an interview with Jesus H. Christ on his advice for how we can thrive in The New Year. And the very first question this interviewer asked fictitiously of Jesus was what the H stood for in his name. And and Jesus, in quotation marks again, said nothing. It's essentially like Ulysses S. Grant. It's just there for like affect. That's treating the name of Jesus lightly. That is Making light of the name of Jesus. Contrast that to the way that he is written about in the scriptures. There's a reason that these words sit over the the head of whoever is preaching every single week. So that you can see it to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. His name is weighty. And we dismiss him when we do not treat his name with the weight that it deserves. What about you in your life? Where are places in your life and maybe in your heart that you are dismissive of Jesus and don't treat him with the weight and honor that he deserves? You may not even, it may just be subconscious to you because in many respects it's just kind of the air that we breathe, right? Maybe that there are times that you just want to hold back certain parts of your life from him like you're willing to give Jesus or you know certain parts of your life, but there are, there are things that you kind of want him to leave you alone on. You're fine to give him weight on Sunday morning in worship, but when it involves doing what you know you need to do, doing what you know it takes to be accepted by your friend group at school, for example, maybe you don't want him interfering in that. Maybe you want him to kind of stay away from that. Maybe you're dismissive of him in that. Um. It's easy to be dismissive of Jesus. The second judgment we see about Jesus in this passage is duplicity. And by duplicity, I mean that we tend to change our judgment about who Jesus is based upon our current life situations. That's just a natural part of being human, and it happens in this passage. If our lives are going smoothly, uh we're we we're we we're, 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 we can feel very close to Jesus, but if there are things that are hard that are going on in our lives, maybe we believe things about him that aren't true. We see this kind of duplicity with the crowd the regular crowd of people, and by the way. When John uses the word Jews, uh, the Jews were seeking to kill him, he's not saying that every Jewish person in Jerusalem was trying to kill Jesus. He's using that as a shorthand euphemism for the religious leaders in Jerusalem, a very specific group of people. Most of the people were of the crowd, and they were just kind of like, I've heard of this guy, you know, like, what, what, what do we think about him? That's what he's talking about here in 10 through 14, because... Some of them say he's a good man. Some of them say he's leading the people astray. The question is, what's the criteria that they're using to make those judgments? Now, the text here in John 7 is not explicit, but the good news is that we didn't just parachute right into John 7. There's context from John 6 and John 5, which John draws into this passage. So most likely... These judgments about Jesus are either things that these people saw for themselves or heard for themselves, like the feeding of the 5,000 men plus all of the women and children, or the really hard teaching about Jesus being the only way to God that Jesus made, or they heard about that teaching. You know, John 6, as we talked about last week, uh, has that report. After this, meaning the really hard teaching that Jesus gave to that crowd, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, because the Feast of Booths was such a huge festival, surely there were people there that either were, 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 had attended that or had heard about that. And so some people are saying, yeah, he did this really cool miracle while we were sitting out in the field and he made all this food and he gave it to us and none of us were hungry anymore. He's a good man. And some people say, well, this guy said if you don 't eat my body and drink my blood you can 't have eternal life he 's leading the people astray right that's that's that 's the context it 's their personal perspective right i, I don 't want to burst anyone 's bubble because i 'm just as much a fan of uh, of the sound of music as the next guy i 'm a fan I love it, but it drives me crazy the song that Maria sings after you know she and captain von Trapp have Finally, kind of, you know, gotten over their little song and dance and professed their love for each other. And Maria sings this song about how this could be, how this wonderful thing could happen in her, her, her life, right? Nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. And I go, No, no, I found the love of my life, God loves me. I lost the love of my life. God hates me. Perspective, right? That is a part of our own hearts. Duplicity. The final judgment that we see about Jesus in this passage is derision. And derision is outright hostility to Jesus. And it is what we see in the dialogue between Jesus and the religious leaders that happens beginning in verse 15. Now, to understand what's going on here, we have to go back even farther in John to John's healing of the man on the Sabbath day. This is in John chapter 5. There was a man who could not walk. He was sitting by the pool, and uh, the legend went that if the pool bubbled up and you were the first person to get into it, you would be healed. But he couldn't move, and he couldn't get in that pool, and he had been sitting there for years upon years upon years upon years. And Jesus just comes up to him and says, do you want to be healed? Take up your mat and walk. And he's healed by the word of Jesus. He takes up his mat and he's walking. And the Jew, and the religious leaders who were there by that pool looked at him and said, hey, who told you you could carry your mat on the Sabbath day? Well, the guy who healed me. They missed the healing part. And then, well, who is this person leading you astray? They're still mad about that. That happened a while back. That was in Jerusalem. Jesus had already gone back to Galilee, come back to Jerusalem, They're still upset about Jesus telling this man to break the Sabbath by walking with his mat after he had been miraculously healed. They bring it up. You're the guy that breaks the Sabbath, right? So in this conversation that Jesus has with them, he does two things. First, he challenges their self-righteousness and therefore challenges our self-righteousness. And then he points to his own righteousness, So Jesus challenges our self-righteousness. I think in many respects, self-righteousness is the greatest hindrance of holding Jesus with the esteem and the weight that he deserves. Because if you think that you're pretty good, you don't need a great savior. You need a helper. You need somebody to kind of push you over the edge. You don't need somebody to bring you back from death to life, as Jesus says. If you don't see your need for Jesus... Why would you ever think that he's that big of a deal? So that's what the religious leaders were thinking. For months they had been incensed that he healed on the Sabbath. And that he told this man to break the Sabbath by carrying his mat. And the more that they thought about it, the angrier they got. They got so angry that they felt like this was a person that needed to be put to death. Now there's irony in here. Don't break the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. But don't kill somebody is also one of the Ten Commandments. But they had gotten so angry over this that they had murderous thoughts in their hearts toward Jesus. And Jesus knew it. Why are you seeking to kill me, he says in verse 19. Why are you seeking to kill me? Why are you you breaking the law in your own heart? There's irony in that. Self-righteousness always leads us away from God and not toward him. But there's good news here, because in the end, Jesus points to his own righteousness. What Jesus told those religious leaders is true of all of us. We are all lawbreakers in one way or another. If it's not murder in our hearts, it's lust. If it's not lust, it's greed. If it's not greed, it's deceit. We simply can't rely on ourselves to save us. So we have to rely on Christ. That's the entire point that Jesus makes in this teaching about circumcision. In verse 21, that's a little bit confusing. I mean, basically, Jesus is saying to those leaders, okay, you rely on Moses, and Moses gave you circumcision. So let me tell you what that is all about. Circumcision was a sign of God's commitment to save his people. Circumcision points to life. The religious leaders are thinking only of death, Jesus, in healing the paralyzed man, says loud and clear, the light that circumcision points to is actually standing in front of you, speaking to you, and yet you want to kill me. You think that you're obeying the law, yet you have death in your heart. I bring life. Don't rely on your self-righteousness. It will lead you in the opposite direction of where you need to go. And I think we all need to hear this. Maybe you came to church this morning with a massive burden of guilt on your shoulders. Maybe even this week, maybe even over this weekend, you feel incredible guilt over something that you did. Something you promised yourself that you were not going to do. Something whose results left you empty and ridden with guilt. You may feel that there's no hope for you because you just are so far from measuring up to the standard that you believe that that God has for you, well, there is, of course, hope. There's great hope for you, not in your ability to measure up to the standard, but in Jesus' ability to measure up to the standard and to gift that measuring up to you by faith in him. But it's also possible that you're here this morning kind of thinking thoughts the other way, You're thinking maybe, you know, if there were just a lot more people out there in the world like me, the world would be a lot better place. It'd just be a a better place if more people were just like me. And in those ways, you're thinking that the problem in the world is all out there. Jesus is saying, no, it's in here. It's in here, and if you don't see that, You'll never come to me, and if you never come to me, that will be a great tragedy. To us who struggle with self-righteousness, and I put myself in this camp too, Jesus says, I can show you a million ways that you break my law. I can show you a million ways that you break my law. Don't rely on your own righteousness. It will take you the wrong direction. Rely on my righteousness. So where are you in this story tomorrow? Maybe somewhere along that path. Struggling with dismissal of Jesus? Not holding his name with the weight and the honor and the glory that it deserves to be held in? Maybe struggling with duplicity? Waxing and waning your, your life in Christ? Just riding the waves depending on how your life is going. Or maybe even outright struggling with derision. Rejecting him. We're all somewhere in there. But Jesus is faithful. Your life, your eternal life, is not based upon your ability to measure up to the standard. It is based on Jesus' faithfulness and not yours and not mine. His call for all of us is to respond with faith and with thanksgiving. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness. Help us to respond to it. Help us to treasure it. Help us to hold your name with weight and honor and glory and thanksgiving. And we ask it in your name. Amen.